All right. Well, it's great to be here today. And um, he's supposed to be up here. This is Mateo. I asked Mateo if he would just join me for a brief illustration as we get started. So uh, Mateo doesn't have to say anything, right? Very good. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to ask Mateo just to help me by giving you a few facial expressions. So Mateo, can you show us what, what does a happy face look like? That's pretty good, right? Don't you feel happier? All right, no. Uh, can you do a sad face for us? Oh, man. I mean, I'm just starting to tear up inside. That was good, right? Now, here's another one. I didn't tell him about this one. This is a surprise face. Show me a happy, sad face. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. All right, buddy, go on. Everybody give him a hand. I thought the happy face was good, and I thought the sad face was good. I'm not so sure about the happy, sad face. What about you? But, but how would you do it if you were to have to give a happy, sad face? It's kind of strange if you think about it. Like To ask somebody, I, I want you to show me a face that expresses both happy and mourning simultaneously. Now, the reason I say that is because we're this morning going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount and really one verse in particular, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as you listen to that, uh, what, what we find, I believe, clearly, as you study that word for blessed, there are a couple of ways that this can be taken. Uh, some look at this, and uh, they see this word, the Greek word makurios, for, for, uh, for blessed here, to speak of a, a kind of divine blessing that's given to someone. Now, that's one way that people take it. But, but I actually think it's, it's more of a state of happiness or flourishing. And uh, Jonathan Pennington has written a great book on the Sermon on the Mount where he shows this. If you read Martin Lloyd-Jones, he speaks of it in this way. If you look at the commentary by R.T. France, he sees it in this way. And I think they're right. In fact, uh, the same Greek word is used in the, the Greek copy of the Old Testament where uh, they're talking about Psalm 1. Do you all remember Psalm 1? Isn't that a great psalm? blessed, where he talks about blessed is the man who, and then he talks about all these things that he doesn't do. And then he says, okay, here's what a blessed man is like. And he describes him as what? A tree that is fruitful planted next to a stream of water. In other words, this blessed man, this happy or flourishing man is like a fruitful tree. And I believe that that's the same word, that the same idea that's being used here as we look at Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. He, Jesus is opening up his ministry, his sermon, with a, a real declaration of what does it look like to have a flourishing, happy life in the kingdom of God, according to the kingdom of heaven, not the, kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. And as he begins to describe it, what's striking is the, the, the pictures that he draws are really a paradox. I mean, happy are the poor in spirit. And you're thinking, poor in spirit sounds like the opposite of being in a good place. Happy are those who mourn. I mean, the, the paradox couldn't be more clear than this one that we're looking at this morning. Happy are those who are sad. It's like, well, which is it? Are you happy or are you sad? You can't be both. Well, Jesus says, actually... If you are understanding the nature of my kingdom, both can be true. In fact, there is a kind of necessary requirement and import that's given here to the nature of those who are truly now presently members of the kingdom of heaven. 
that has come and is coming and one will, will one day eventually arrive. So as we think about the Beatitudes, let me just give you a little bit of uh, an understanding of the way that we ought to be thinking about the Beatitudes. And um, there's a lot of discussion on this, but I'm going to keep it short to let you understand how I'm viewing these. Uh, I, I would encourage you to look at the Beatitudes in a three-dimensional kind of way. Now, here's what I mean by that. I believe there's a sense in which they are actual. There is a sense in which they are aspirational. And there is a sense in which they are anticipatory. Now, those are three A's. And so I felt like as a preacher, I should use all A's and, and those are nice. But what does that mean? Okay, well, first they are actual. If you are a Christian, this side of the cross and the resurrection as Jesus is enthroned next to the Father waiting to return. We have the Holy Spirit, and there is a real sense in which each one of those beatitudes should actually be a part of us. But there's also a sense in which they are anticipatory, right? Like when we read these, we shouldn't just go like, blessed are those who mourn. That's me. I am a perfect mourner. I mourn about the right things. I don't mourn about the wrong things. I'm centrally where God wants me. Anybody like that this morning? Don't raise your hand. This would be a bad time. I'm just letting you know. Like everybody look at you like you're strange, right? because we know that we're all in process. But we also know that there's a third way that we should be looking at these, and that is anticipatorily, in the sense that we know that there is a great day coming when Jesus comes back, when our mourning shall be perfect, shall be sanctified, shall be purified, and then cast away forever. I mean, what a day that shall be. Well, as we look at this this morning, we find this. This is our big idea. If you write things down, this is a great thing to write down. It's a Christ's kingdom doesn't mean that you will not mourn. Christ's kingdom, if you are part of Christ's kingdom, it does not mean that you are not going to be a mourner, someone who mourns. But it does promise that God himself will comfort you. And we're going to be thinking about this morning. I think that's a great thing to be thinking about. But first, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. That's what we find in Matthew 5, 4. Now, as, as you read this, I don't know if you're like me, but... Sometimes you read a verse and you're like, I don't know if I quite understand that. I'm not sure that word means what you think it means. And so I'll look it up in the Greek. And so I looked up the word for mourning in the Greek. And I found that it is an inward sorrow or grief that often leads to outward tears. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's what I thought it meant. And now it becomes more confusing. Well, two quick thoughts as we begin. First, this statement makes no sense without the promise that's attached to it. Does that make sense? When Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who mourn, if he stopped there, then he would be some kind of masochist, right? Like, man, just be as sorrowful as you can be, and then everything's over. But he doesn't. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the promise. It makes sense of everything that comes before. But second, Jesus intended, hear me, he intended this to arrest his first audience of Jews, the disciples, and the other Greeks, I believe, that came along, the other Gentiles that would have come along. Uh, they all would have been coming and listening to Jesus. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, as he's proclaiming to be the coming Messiah and King, they all would have been struck with a look like happy, sad, like I'm confused. In other words, this isn't meant to be the kind of thing that oh, well, I wonder how the first century Jew and Gentile would have received this. I mean, it confuses us, but I'm sure that it made lots of sense to them. No, they would have been struck by this statement. 
Now, maybe you were this morning, morning and asking, am I in a good place? You know, I, I felt like this Christianity deal would be different. Or, or maybe you became a Christian and you've been walking with the Lord and you've been faithful and you've been growing in holiness and maybe you were living like your best life for, for Christ yet, as faithful as you'd ever been, and life blew up on you. And at first you said, I knew this was going to happen. I just need to be faithful and a new day's coming. But the days and the weeks and the years have become long. And you're wondering if in your morning you're in a bad place. That's the reason that you're facing the suffering, the struggling, the pain, the mourning that you're facing. Or maybe you're not mourning this morning and you're wondering if that means that I need to try to mourn or I'm in a bad place. Well, we want to clarify this. We want to understand what it is that Jesus is saying to us. So we, we make sure we are in a good place. We're like that flourishing tree. I mean, who here wants to be like the flourishing, life-giving fruitful tree in their life now and forevermore. Anybody else like that? Yeah, that's where I'm at. So here we go. First, a few clarifications, observations about mourning that I want to make as we get ramped up. First, here again, Jesus is announcing, just like blessed are the poor in spirit, he is announcing that he is fulfilling, as your pastor John Diedrich said earlier this morning in Isaiah 61, I have arrived, I've come to, to heal I've come to restore. I've come to wipe away the tears of those who mourn. Jesus says, I am. I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah 61 said was coming. I am the spirit anointed conqueror, anointed to bring good news to the poor. The Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn and Zion. See, Isaiah says that he would give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He's replacing their tears with laughter. I mean, what an exchange. I want that exchange. Give me some of that. See, Jesus signals the reversal of the fortunes of those who mourned in Zion, those who mourned over Zion, and those who mourned because of Zion's sins. They are so many. And yet, here we find the kingdom has arrived with King Jesus, but the center of that party that they had been looking forward to, catch this, what we find in the rest of this gospel is that the center of the party that they had been long expecting, it was, catch this, a cross and not a cake. They were expecting that when this Messiah was to come, this conqueror, that he would set things right, that he would the cause of mourning. But what we find is when Jesus comes is that the greatest salvation, the greatest restoration, the things that really cause us to mourn are things that are not solely external but internal. It's our broken hearts. And Jesus came to fix those. Now you might ask, why? Why is the center of this king's ministry here on earth at this point in history a cross and not a cake? Well, Jesus expected they, the Jews expected the kingdom to arrive with an immediate reversal of their fortunes. And Jesus says, not so fast. The kingdom is here, just not fully. And your joy will be mixed with mourning if you were truly in a good place. If you were flourishing, every bit of your joy will be mixed with gall, with the mourning of this world, of sin, of this life, of the brokenness of the world that you live in. Now, I'm pretty sure there will be cake at the marriage feast of the Lamb. I just want to let you know, I mean, I can't speak theologically about that. I can't imagine the feast without the cake. I think we'll be happy either way. 
But Jesus will tell his followers to take up their crosses and follow him later. And that that's flourishing. It's following the king. Following Jesus is the only way to a fruitful life or life at all. Now, this is not, as we come to this, I think there's a a second observation that we need to make. Not only is he 61, we need to recognize, I believe, that not all mourning is happy. You catch that? Not, Not all mourning is the happy kind of mourning that we find Jesus speaking of here. So let me give you some examples that we find throughout the scriptures of an unhappy kind of mourning. Uh, We find these throughout. Uh, Thomas Watson has a list of his. Uh, I have my list, and and here it goes. First, mopey mourning. See, these are kinds of mourning as we move into it that they almost look repentant, right? And I believe that this mourning points towards a kind of repentance of heart for sin. I'm not saying that this world doesn't get broken in ways that necessarily you didn't sin to have come about, but all moping and mourning eventually goes back to consequences of the sin or direct sins. But here, I think we're going to see all kinds of mourning that get almost to the point of that kind of biblical repentance that Jesus calls of us, but stops just short. And moping mourning is one of these. I mean, just consider in Matthew 6.16 where Jesus warns that there are were some who disfigured their faces. They looked gloomy during fast to be seen by others. See, moping isn't mourning. That's not what we're talking about. You you might read this, and you might have some wrong observations or conclusions about this, just like those who disfigured their faces. See, Jesus is not asking for his people to pretend to be happy when they mourn on one hand, or on the other hand, to pretend to be mopey on the outside while actually sort of happy on the inside, though as though being mopey was somehow more spiritual, right? Like, I just believe that, I, that God is most glorified in me. Oh, is that better? As though the Bible teaches something like, God is most glorified in me when I am most sorrowful for him, right? Like if I am really suffering, like there was a season in my life where I thought that was true. Like God just wants me to be as unhappy as possible for him. That's not the gospel. The gospel is finding joy in God. It's not mourning falsely. It's having a true kind of mourning. See, moping externally for attention without a heart that mourns is hypocritical, and Jesus, he calls us against that. Second, what about blame-shifting mourning? Have you seen that? Like, one example, 1 Samuel 15, 24. Samuel was mourning outwardly for his sin. He even confesses his transgression and then explained the reason. I feared the people. And how familiar does that sound? Sound maybe like Adam and Eve in the garden? Isn't it not the the woman that you gave me? (laughs) Like, there's a lot of deflection going on in that sort of mourning of sin. See, the answer isn't, it's the wife that you gave me, the devil made me do it. I didn't eat and I was hangry, I had too much gluten today. Like, the idea that's given here is that we don't blame shift, but we own our sin. Third, lustful mourning. 
Amon in 2 Samuel 13. You remember the way that he was looking at his sister. It says that he looked haggard day after day because of the lust that he had for his sister Tamar. And eventually he violated her. Now, now hear me, ladies, gentlemen, especially single folks. There is a real sense in which there can be a, an appropriate kind of sadness over being single and, and wanting a good thing that God has for you. But there is a place, there is a, a place in your heart where there can become a movement, a movement that moves from a right lamenting and praying to and praying for and trusting God into a bitterness against God. And then a, I'm going to have it my way, God, and whatever it takes to get it. And we need to be super careful that when we're in those moments of mourning over really things that are legit, that make sense, that we don't turn into sin to answer the desires of our hearts. So keep the love of God and the trust of God and the desire to make others fruitful ever before your eyes. Now, let me, let me just say this. When you're thinking about desiring a relationship and you're praying for that, one of the things that you can keep before your eyes is if I'm in a relationship with this man or with this woman, do I believe that she or he is someone that's going to make me more fruitful for the gospel? And do I believe that if I'm with this person, I can make them flourish for the name of Jesus Christ? Can I, is this somebody that that can happen with? Or is that a place where I feel like it's sort of a dead end? See, don't let sadness lead to self-pity and then sin. Also, fourth, greedy mourning, like King Ahab. And he had many vineyards in 1 Kings 21. You remember that guy? I mean, he had everything you could want. And of course, he was married to the famous Jezebel. Any girls named Jezebel here? There's a reason for that. And if you are, no, don't worry. It's just your parents didn't know. Like, it was a biblical name. They just went with it. But, but Jezebel was this, this man's wife. And as he's desiring it, it says that he was vexed or sullen because Naboth would not Sin against God. Like in context, he was asking Naboth to sin against God to give the land that God had given him. So his wife Jezebel killed Naboth and took his vineyard. And he just kind of went along. And he was, he was desirous of something other than God. That was why he was mourning. Even sinning against God in the thing that he wanted. Hosea 7.14 is lamenting that Israel as a nation was not crying out to God from the heart over their sin but wailed on their beds for wine and grain. Do you, do you hear that? His sadness is not that people were not mourning because of their condition and their circumstances. The problem was that amidst those circumstances, which reflected the judgment of God, that in those, they never looked beyond the loss of the grain and the wine. All they could see is the stuff that they didn't have and not the good God who gave it to them. And so there was like a ceiling that just they couldn't get beyond to the spirituality of the things that they were mourning over. All they could think is, I want, I don't have. They didn't think about the giver who gives all things to his people. Do you lament what others have? Do we think the good life is insulating ourselves from earthly comforts and using those earthly comforts to insulate us against mourning or sadness? You know, maybe the things that we're insulating us from ourselves from are the things that God intends to draw us near to himself. Fifth, what about a hopeless morning? Have you ever had that? I'm not talking about getting the kids to church like M-O-U-R-N. I mean, let's not forget Judas in Matthew 27, who looks so close to a kind of morning 
that leads to repentance. A, a lot of us don't notice this about Judas. I mean, Judas, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but then we're told that he regretted what he did. Do you remember that part of the story? He confessed his sin. He even gave retribution. He paid back what he owed. He threw the money back into the temple. And then he went and killed himself. He regretted his sin, but never turned in faith to Christ as the only hope for the hopeless. Now, th this is not a commentary on a biblical understanding of suicide. I'm not, that's not what I'm giving with Judas. Um, I, I believe there's hope in cases for that. But, but in Judas, we never see, we never see a repentance. We never see a true kind of owning of sin and a hope in Christ. And what about six, the self-pitying mourning? A self-pitying kind of mourning. This is my favorite. I'm best at this. See, when God pushed and punished Cain for killing Abel in Genesis 4, his first response came to God as he was being receiving this judgment. He says to God, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Now, did you catch that? Cain has murdered his brother, tried to cover it up. God has exposed his sin against himself and his brother. And his concern is what? The consequences. Like, I'm so much better. I deserve better than these consequences. You're, what, a harsh God. You're a vindictive God. Now, what did God tell his father Adam about sin? You shall die. What does God let Cain do? Live. He lets him live. There's another day for mercy. See, Cain was so concerned about the consequences of what he had done. He, he did not think about the the, the seriousness of his own sin or his offense against God. Cain could not see the mercy of God on display to him and not killing him on the spot. A life for a life. Lex Talionis would have been just. Cain didn't mourn his sin and rejoice in God's mercy. He mourned the consequence. And God's consequence to Cain was just in a world run by vengeance. Now, does your mourning lead to repentance? Or vengeance. When you're sad this morning, like maybe you're sad you're here. You're sad with the people of God, worshiping the God who created you, who sent his son for you. Maybe that's where you're at. You're angry at God. Is, is that sadness leading you to understanding who you are before God and your desperate need of him and only him for things that only he can provide? Or are you just angry and want vengeance against God, against others? I mean, I know my heart's done this. I have kids. I know that works that way in their hearts. I think it's a human condition. I'm not saying you need to repent this morning over deep loss that calls for lament. There is deep loss in this life. You lose your, your wife. You lose your parent. You lose a kid. You go through sickness that seems to never end and sorrow. You've lost a job. You're in a difficult place financially. It's, it's mournful, it's, it's, it's lamentable. But in that moment, do you look to God? Where do you run? Where do you run in your morning? In your morning, are you running in those moments to God or away from God? 
We need to make sure that we continue to run to God because catch this, there is no other place to run. Now catch this, self-pity and vengeance, they often go to the same parties and hang out. They like to bowl together. They like to spend weekends in San Diego on the beach together. Pity and vengeance, they are a very tight couple. You know, I think, in fact, that Genesis 4 ends putting this on display. If you look in Genesis 4 where Cain has has just complained about his consequences being too much, it ends with saying, uh, after it moves on some verses, it speaks about Lamech, his kid, and Lamech. He says this, it says, Lamech says, if Cain's vengeance or revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. It's highlighting man's vengeance as compared to the mercy of God that was shown to his dad. Do, do you see that? God is merciful. Man's vengeance in his self-pity just grows into to greater vengeance. I recently heard a retired pastor say that he thinks that Self-pity is the root of so much sin. Self-pity can make and manifest in all kinds of ways. It can manifest as a kind of sadness or mourning that this life is not, it's not turned out the way that it should or that you should have been dealt a better hand. It's, it's this idea that you don't have an, enough, right? You need more. You need more of a wife. You need more of a, more kids. You need more money. You need, God hasn't given me the things that I need, and he's taken more than what is his. It, it, it's mine. See, that kind of worldly mourning misunderstands God's profound mercy and grace to sinners, and the great comfort that he promises his people. Now, I once counseled a man whose spouse did not disclose uh, just how sinful her life was before they were married. And after uh, many years, uh, they came to Christ, glorious thing. And then after that, uh, they sat under gospel preaching for a season. And she became convicted that she had not been fully honest about like where she had been before. And so she shared it with him. And when he heard it, he just became a wreck. Understandably so. And, and we counseled together, and I gave him some stuff to read, and th- they began, we began to counsel, and he got counseling with others, and he was reading articles about forgiveness. And I remember one day he came into my office, and we were about to get started, and he said, before we begin, I just need to, to confess something to you. And I said, well, what's, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, I've been so angry, and I've been trying to figure out why is it that I'm so angry at my wife because of this, this lifestyle that she had before me. And he said, I, I thought it was because of like all her many sins. And as I started to think about my own heart and the posture of what it was doing, what I realized was what I was really angry about at the end of the day was that I didn't get to take the same liberties with sin as she did. And he said, I am such a sinner. And, and he repented of that. And I'm not going to say that like everything was like roses from there on out, but there was a dramatic change in the conversation between them from that moment forward. He realized that if I really believe the gospel, and what that means is, is not that I didn't get to do anything, but that I was saved from so much evil, that I got God in a way that she didn't. He repented of mourning over the wrong thing. And maybe you have something this morning. You're mourning and you think you're mourning one thing, but there is something deeper. 
something that is sinful, that is wrong, that is not true. It's a lie that you're believing that is keeping you from having the kind of freedom and comfort that God wants to bring to you. You are not a happy mourner if you are mourning over sinful desires. There are no new mourning mercies for worldly kind of mornings like these. So don't miss this. Our mornings reveal what we value most. And if we do not mourn our sin, it reveals that we don't really love Jesus most. If we don't mourn our sin, we'll mourn anything and love anything. And that's the way of life that promises eternal life. Catch this. What you mourn says something about who you love. So who do you love behind your mourning? Third, Jesus mourned. Not all mourning's bad. Jesus mourned. Uh, Think about this. Jesus' day, there was a group of teachers, the Stoics, and they taught that the good life meant learning not to be moved by emotions like mourning. And here Jesus enters the stage and he says, happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I didn't come for the winners, those who are celebrating victory in a like nonstop ESPN Luke kind of way. I didn't come for the winners. I came for the losers, for the sad, for those who are needy, who understand their need. Jesus didn't come expecting, Jesus, um, Jews didn't expect a kingdom of mourners, much less a mourning king, but they should have. We talked about that text that Jesus fulfills in Isaiah 61, that conquering king who would come and rescue his people. But in the middle of Isaiah, you have this whole section on this other elusive character, the suffering servant. And what we find is that same suffering servant is also the conquering king. It's the same man. And so as we look at Isaiah 53.3, you'll find that that king who would usher in the kingdom was a suffering servant of whom he said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, the eternal Son of God, who enjoyed eternal joy at the right hand of the Father, took on flesh as what? The man of sorrows for you and me. He didn't need sorrow. Anybody here, like, think on a nice Saturday, reading a book, taking a nap, chilling out, watching too much Netflix, thinking to yourself, man, you know what I need today is some more discomfort and sorrow. Imagine infinite joy, like the best day of your life, and being invited to come and leave that, to take on the mourning of a sorrowful people like you and me. See, many have noted that Jesus never laughed during his earthly ministry in the Gospels. He was angry, he loved, He was compassionate, and he mourned. Now, what causes Jesus to mourn? Well, as we look through the Bible, we see a couple of instances. You remember when he saw Lazarus dead? He weeps over the death of Lazarus in John 11.35 before he raises him from the dead. Do you think he was weeping because he thought that death had won? No, I think that Benjamin Warfield gets it right when he talks about the way that as he was looking at his dead friend, he wept over the consequences of sin for the friend he so deeply loved. So he he wept over the consequences of sin. Jesus also wept over Jerusalem in John 19 as he anticipated their future destruction because the way of peace with God, it says, was hidden from their eyes. So Jesus is, he's weeping over the, the consequences of sin 
He's weeping over the condition of sin. Jesus never sinned, though. Never mourned his own sin. He was perfect in every way. So one author understands that just as Isaiah 61 sees mourning over Zion, refusing to repent and believe, this beatitude specifically calls for mourning the condition of Zion. I think this means it's okay to mourn the effects of living in a broken world like sickness and death. I think it's, it's a good thing to do that, but to lament and to trust God. Now, I, I love this beatitude. And I'm sure your church is this kind of place because I know John, man, we, I learned so much from him. We have conversations all the time. And as he's trying to shepherd you, I'm learning stuff. He loves you. He, he looks to care for you from the word. But what this beatitude tells us is it is okay not to be okay. Do y'all know? I think that's, John, this is that kind of place, right? Where, yeah, it's okay not to be that way, not to be okay. But I think John would also say, we love you too much to want you to just stay there. We want to be a place where those who are broken can come, but where you understand that there's a flourishing and a fruit to be had. Your life is not over. It's not worthless. It's meant for the glory of God. We don't stay in our condition, but Jesus didn't come for the thriving according to this world's standards. Hear this. We are called to fight for joy and not to pretend not to mourn and grieve loss. I talked to a sister in Christ uh, just a few weeks ago at my own church. We were in the, the lobby and she said that she's still hurting over the death of a friend three years later. See, Jesus doesn't reject those who struggle to get out of bed in the morning due to sadness. You might feel that way. You might feel like no one wants to comfort you. No one cares Jesus came for those who can't get out of bed in the morning. But catch this. There's one way that we mourn that Jesus does not. Jesus never mourned his sin, but we should. See, Jesus' mission was to rescue mournful rebels destined for God's just wrath and to give them eternal joy. Now, you can see this in Jesus' Beatitudes. Uh, in Luke 6.21, there's another list of Beatitudes in Luke 6, a little bit different, kind of the same. But in 6.21, he said, Blesses are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. And he follows this with a woe in Luke 6.25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See, Jesus warned that there's a way to live this life. Full of laughter, full of comfort, that's followed by death and eternal mourning. Don't miss this. Jesus did not come for the happy people who did not need him, but for those who mourn their sins and knew their need of deliverance. That's who Jesus came for. There's only one good place. If you want to know where the good place is to be in life, there's only one good place. And it's not a geography, but a person. It's Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is not, the loud, not with the loud and the proud who have plenty of comfort and no worry of sin. He's with the poor and the broken. But notice, also, mourning sin leads to repentance. Now, Chrysostom said this about this verse, ancient teacher. He said this, they are not blessed who mourn for the dead, but rather those who mourn for sin. See, those who mourn for sin will also receive comfort in death, but they must mourn their sins. I think that's ground zero. See, the rest is true generally, that we will mourn other things, but we must mourn our sin. Only if we mourn our sin does our mourning for these other things make sense, the mourning of death. If you're living on mourning of death, but not mourning of sin, then you've missed the truth about flourishing in this life. Now, here are three things to know about the gospel kind of centered mourning that we're talking about. First, God's grace leads us to mourning sin. It takes a work of God in you to cause you to mourn sin. Zechariah 12.10 says it this way. 
God is speaking to Israel and he says, I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. Anybody here like, yes, I would love if God would just, I mean, he has, but I would love this picture of God pouring out the spirit of grace upon us. And then he says, and they shall mourn. I didn't see that coming. A spirit of grace that leads to mourning. A right understanding of who we are and who God is. So we should pray that God would reveal our sin to us and help us to rightly mourn. Second, Jesus' brother James says we should mourn our sin. So James seems to reflect a lot of teachings of Jesus. If you read through it, it sounds a lot like it's inspired by the Sermon on the Mount. And in James 4, 9, he aims at mourning, his, his mourning, he aims it at sin. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in the context of calling people to flee sin, he says this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And why is he saying that? Well, because he's saying there is a, a way in which if we are really running from sin and to God, it's happening because we are mourning our sin and understanding where we are before God. If we become so callous towards our sin that we don't mourn it, we've lost sight of the gospel. We've lost sight of Jesus. We're not in a good place. 1 John 1, 9 gives us this great uh, promise where he calls us to, not to deny that we have sin, not to dismiss it, not to blame others, not to act like we understand it outwardly without a contrite heart. But instead, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just both to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And third, Paul says, we should mourn the sins of others. Speaking to the Corinthian church about not disciplining a guy sleeping with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5.2, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, we, we should mourn, Paul says, the sin of this person who is not being held to account. Fourth, godly mourning leads to repentance. When we understand our poverty of spirit before God, we will understand our great mournful sin debt before him. And that's what we deserve. It isn't a party, but a funeral. Apart from Christ, there is no cake at the party. That's where we mourn and grieve our sin in such a way that it leads us to repentance, life-giving. Uh, Paul says, he says it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11, godly grief, it produces repentance that leads to salvation. If there's a kind of godly grief, a kind of godly mourning that leads to repentance and salvation, and it brings no regret. But worldly grief, it produces what? Death. Doesn't sound like Jesus does it. It does in context. See, mourning over our sin leads to repentance, which leads to joy of salvation. We can confess our sins knowing that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God's kingdom, it's made up of people who flourish as they mourn and await the return of Christ. Now here's the promise, the shorter part, super application. Because God himself will comfort us now and forever. Happy are those who mourn because they shall be comforted by God. I want to answer a few quick questions here that are all full of application for our hearts. Who comforts us? How do they comfort us? And when do we get comforted? First, who comforts us? You'll notice in this verse that it says, happy are those who mourn for or because they shall be comforted. It doesn't tell us who's doing the comforting there, though. 
But, but we understand in Greek that this is a word or a construct that actually is telling us that, A, this being happy and mourning is grounded in what comes after, and that's the promise that we read about, they shall be comforted, and also that this is a, a, a divine passive, which means that it's God himself who is doing the comforting. That's understood in all of these. He is the one that's bringing about the promises. So here we find that it's God himself that comforts us. See, what we need is comfort that only our triune God can provide. It is the mercy and pity of God on his people that he causes, uh, that he causes him to warn them of being exiled into Babylon before cry, uh, calling them to cry out in their distress in Isaiah 41. And we see the character of God as pe- God's people are crying out to him. They say, uh, God says back to them, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Like just a picture of the character of God on display with a rebellious people. Do you know that your God is like that? He is a God who is comforting to his people. He wants you to be comforted. He doesn't take joy in your suffering. Doesn't waste it. Doesn't rejoice in it. So how are we comforted? Well, look with me really quickly at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. I think that this text gives us an answer to the ways that we are comforted. And here's why I ask this. Like when you read that, you might be thinking, okay, when am I comforted and how does this comfort come? I mean, is this something that he's saying like right now he's going to comfort me? Or is he saying like, hey, you should have been fully comforted at the cross and what happened there? Or is he saying, look, it's going to be just really rough. And then Jesus comes back and you get all the comfort. Nothing until then. Well, I think for 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4 gives us kind of an answer. Here's what he says. Paul says, blessed, a different word than the beatitude, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we, may be able to, we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, there's a lot there, but let me just unpack it really quickly. A few ways that we receive comfort in this verse, these very verses. First, God is the Father of all comfort. You see it, it it's coming straight from God. And what that means is the comfort that we need, it doesn't come from our circumstances right now on earth, but from our Father in heaven. So how do we get comforted? By God himself. In other words, as we mourn sin in in a broken world, we need to seek God's face in prayer for comfort that only he can give. If you're thinking, I'm a Christian, I don't need to ask God for comfort in this moment, or I've asked and I've given up because he just hasn't answered, there's nowhere else to go but him. You can't go anywhere else but God for the comfort you need. The Holy Spirit also indwells God's people as a helper, as John 16 says. And in 1 John 3, 24, it says, and by this we know that he abides in us. You know, this is encouragement that you might know that you're really a Christian, that he abides in you. It's by the spirit whom he has given us. A spirit that's meant to comfort us in our doubts and our needs and our trust in God. See, the triune God comforts us. Second, notice that God comforts us in our afflictions. God does not necessarily remove the discomfort in 1 Corinthians, does he? Does he say, those who are in discomfort, pray to me and I will remove the discomfort and then you will be comforted. No. No, Christianity means taking up our cross and following Jesus, but he will meet us through his word giving us a kind of heavenly rationale for taking comfort even in our suffering. You see that? He, he changes the way that we see it and understand it in light of who he is. 
For instance, if you were to read through the Bible and you're to build up a, a heavenly logic against the pain and the mourning of the circumstances of this life, here's some artillery that you would put in your arsenal. We know that in our suffering and the things that we mourn over in our sin, we know that he is killing sin in our lives. That's what he's doing. We know that God has also told us that our sufferings are small in the weight of the glory that awaits us. We know that these afflictions are momentary. They seem so long, but momentary compared to the eternal joy that awaits us. And you can go on and on. See, that's the heavenly logic that turns to fire under affliction. There also seems to be a supernatural communion, I believe, that's here between us and God, so that God in some way mystically comforts his people with the kind of comfort they don't understand amidst suffering. I've experienced this myself. Third, God brings us comfort through those who have experienced his comfort. Did you see that in 1 Corinthians? He says, I, I have comforted you so that you might comfort others in all of their various sufferings. Now think about this. Paul says that if you're struggling with mourning, I don't know what your tendency is. Maybe it's to think that you'll be in, huddled in the fetal position in your closet in the dark, right? Just waiting for it to go away. Paul says, no, one of God's gifts to you as a Christian is a local church of other believers who have they themselves suffered so that God could purpose it and refashion it to be used to encourage you in your mourning. So that there's a real sense in which as we suffer, as we repent of sin, as we experience the brokenness of this life and we trust Jesus and he brings us to the other side of it, maybe hobbling and limping, but to the other side of it, that God says, you might look like you're going to walk with a gimp for the rest of your life, but I'm going to make you run for the glory of God. That's the way that God works. You need a church to comfort you. And it is the very hands of God. But when are we comforted? 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 to 17. When? Well, Jesus promises that God himself will comfort us, but when? Well, will that happen at the cross? When the Holy Spirit would later come? to those he was speaking to, or when Jesus returns. Well, I, I believe that there's a past, present, and future reality of the comfort that he promises us here. You all hear that? It is not just all awaiting us when Jesus returns. I believe there's a present reality that this is for. I mean, just look at 2 Thessalonians 2.16. I love this. Paul is speaking to a new, young Christian church in Thessalonica. And as he's, as he's preaching to them, he is worried that they have turned on the faith because they are suffering persecution. I mean, Paul got run out on a rail. He's not even sure they're believers there anymore. And yet he writes back and he finds that they truly are there. Timothy brings a report. But here's what he says about this young church in Thessalonica. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them. Do you notice that the way he speaks of comfort here, comfort comes in the past. It's something that he gave us, the God of eternal comfort. And then he goes on to say, not, not only is it something that, that I gave you, but he's going to go on to say something else. But let me say this really quickly. I'd be remiss to say that this comfort is offered to everyone. It hasn't been given to everyone. It's given to those who put their faith in Jesus. 
So as we're talking about comfort and the brokenness of this world, the only hope that you have is in the man, Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension. If you don't believe in that Jesus, then the comfort that we're talking about isn't, isn't for you, but we would love for you to have it. And so I'd love to talk to you more about this, but if you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I don't have comfort in this world. It is comfortless. It seems to get worse and worse. I need hope. Talk to John Diedrich. I'd love, I know he'd love nothing more than talk to you about the gospel after the service. But there is a past kind of comfort that came from the eternal God of comfort. But the comfort is present as well. Did you see that? Did you notice that he prays that Jesus Christ might comfort their hearts and establish them? That's a present thing. Pray that, that Christ might himself comfort and establish your hearts. That is a present kind of thing that he seems to be praying for in the, the present. The reality isn't with respect to time. He simply asks that it is done in this life. See, sometimes God changes our circumstances in the present. Sometimes he heals the sick. Sometimes he gives us better jobs. Sometimes he saves our marriages or gives us a spouse. But God is more concerned with our hearts and whether we mourn what he mourns and loves what he loves. See, this comfort also points to the, fu points to the future. Because notice that he offers eternal comfort. I mean, this is the, the already not yet, ultimate last day that we long for when the kingdom of heaven comes fully to earth and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 24, uh, 21 envisions this happy day. And he says that day is like a wedding. Uh, I hope that if you've had a wedding, you remember that as a very happy day. I mean, usually when you think about a wedding, you think about what? As I said before, cake. It's getting about lunchtime. So lots of cake, dancing, music, joy, laughter, like those little bubbles and like fiery things. Like you, you, you think sparklers. Yeah, like a party, right? Like it's a good thing. And that's what the last day is presented as for us. A day of joy, not mourning. A day when... God's people as a bride adorned for him, see their groom come for them. We're told there will be no more mourning anymore in Revelation 24. He says that there he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and there shall be no mourning, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. And that's why Paul frees us to grieve with those who grieve, but not as those who have no hope. First Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. We have hope in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you came for those who mourn. But Father, also that you have given us revelation of yourself that helps us to see what should truly make us sorrowful. And Lord, it's in that moment through the, the work of your spirit that we are able to see our desperate need for what only our King Jesus can provide. Father, thank you that Jesus came to make a way for us, that he comes to give us hope through his death and his resurrection, that he has come to give us life, that he has come to promise us that all those things that cause us to mourn in this life will one day pass away and give way to eternal joy with you forevermore. Lord Jesus, we pray, come quickly. Amen.